0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayer is that this encourages you in the Lord. You guys can be seated. Appreciate you, man. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody today. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 21, verses 12 through 36. Exodus 21, verses 12 through 36. I hope that you all had a wonderful Easter, and this week was good for you as well. And it is certainly always a joy to be able to gather back together again on Sunday mornings and open the Lord's Word. We're going to continue this morning through our journey in Exodus, particularly what is known as uh, the Book of the Covenant. This is the law that was given by God to Moses that Moses will give the Israelites to live out as they are a freshly redeemed people and a, a nation now that is, that is autonomous and one of their own. And so God gives them some specific laws. I've given you this disclaimer a couple of times. Uh, but there, there are going to be things over the next few weeks that we talk through that are going to feel really, really irrelevant to you. Um, they're gonna, we're going to be talking about oxen and being gored by an ox and uh, many different things that just don't really fit into our culture or our context. But I want to encourage you to fight through that because I do believe that we will see, Lord willing, some, some personal application And even have a little bit more understanding of the heart behind the laws that the Lord gives to to his people. And so this morning we're going to pick up in verse 12 of chapter 21 through verse 36. This is the word of the Lord. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two and... He is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule." If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit, and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this section of scripture. Um, I thank you for the challenges that it brings, that that it brought to me in preparation. I thank you for the challenges that will bring all of us. And the reason I thank you for the challenges, Lord, is because it forces us to dig deeper and to work harder in understanding your word. And, And I think a necessary discipline for all of us is to be diligent in every aspect of your word. Um, One of the reasons, Father, as you know, that we preach verse by verse is so that we will receive your whole counsel. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Father, that you would teach us not only what this meant, first for those that it was given to, but also how this can be applied to our hearts and to our lives today. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you may remember before we started the Ten Commandments, we spent a whole Sunday on (laughs) the law and the three aspects of the law being the ceremonial law, which dealt with sacrifices, the tabernacle and the. Priestly rituals, and then there was the second aspect of the law that was the civil law, which dealt with penalties for crimes, and then the third aspect of the law, which is the moral law. And the moral law are the abiding uh, principles that are summarized in the Ten Commandments. The moral law is, in fact, eternal, it's never, ever going to change. The things that are mentioned or summarized in the Ten Commandments will always be true and they'll always be right. Now, the ceremonial law and the civil law, as we a read how, how the Israelites received it for the first time, those things will, I mean, and have obviously changed in regards to our understanding in our application. But one of the things we dealt with in that um, sermon on that Sunday, and if you haven't heard it, I encourage you to go back j- just to be informed a little bit more because we're going to talk for the next few months still a lot about the law. You'll see that there is a good bit of overlap in the three, particularly in the civil law and the moral law. And this morning, that's what we have. We have civil laws and in those civil laws, there's an overlap and there's some morality and some moral issues that are being addressed as well. And so, again, the section today is dealing with civil laws, and there are three categories of these laws. And if you want to jot these down, it may be helpful for you. The first category is the capital crime category. So, what I mean by capital crime are the crimes that are punishable by death, okay? The second category is the personal injury category. And the third category is the criminal negligence category. Now, this does this just feel like a 100 level law school class already. It should. It should, but hang in there with me because I think this is, some of this is going to be really interesting for you and I hope by the end you see the application and then by God's grace we see the gospel applied to it as well. And so in beginning in verse 12, I'm going to go pretty quickly through these, but I do want to try to take it a verse at a time. There's one section that I'll leave out starting in verse 23 through about 27 that I'll address in the application at the end, but I'm going to take a verse or a couple of verses at a time and roll through these three categories pretty quickly. And so verse 12 is the first in the capital crime category, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. This is, this is self-explanatory. He's speaking of premeditated murder. And so if one individual sets out to kill another individual on purpose with that intent, and there is clear motive, then they are to be put to death. A, a principle that's already been established even through our journey in the Ten Commandments is that it is a life for a life. Okay? So 13, verse 13 says... But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. Now, 13, when it says, God let him fall into his hand, it means that this individual died in a sense in the providence of God. But it was an unintentional death. It was an accidental death that may have been caused by another individual. Well, the punishment for this was not death, especially if it could have been proven or if it was obvious that it was an accident that killed the other individual. But you notice the Lord also says that I will appoint for you a place. Now, there's not a whole lot of information given here, but what this is referencing, and you may have heard of these if you've read through the Old Testament. But if you killed someone accidentally, the Lord appointed what are called cities of refuge. Okay, And so these cities of refuge had the intent to sort of calm the situation down so that a trial and a judicial sentencing could take place so you wouldn't just be killed on the spot. And so, obviously, there's a lot of tension or can be a lot of tension when there's an accidental death. And so, there were these cities of refuge that were established that the individual would go to. And sometimes even those who had committed murder, intentionally murdered someone else, they would go to these cities of refuge as well, awaiting their trial and awaiting their sentencing. But... What I think you see is even in an accident, it wasn't just, oh, Hank accidentally killed Brandon. They were working on the farm and uh, Hank made a mistake and and Brandon was killed. Uh, I'm I'm sorry that happened, Hank. I'm sorry, Brandon and his family, you know, that that happened. And they just kind of went on with life. When a life is lost, it's a big deal. There's, there's value to human life under the book of the covenant. And so you see, even though they're not put to death and it's taken into account that it was an accident, you still see them place a high value on human life. Okay. Verse 14, but if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Now, verse 14 is referencing a, a, a a pretty sneaky individual. Okay. Cause, cause he's really dealing with murder here. It's somebody that has schemed to kill someone else, but sort of did it secretly so that nobody would know. It would be one of these CSI type situations where it wasn't just this clear cut murder case. There's something sneaky going on. And so that's what the, the, you know, the cunning mean, but there's also another aspect to this individual is this individual has found his way to, to the altar. Well, this individual mentioned knows that you can't be killed at the altar. In fact, I want to show you a scripture in First Kings. It'll be on the screen behind me, or you can turn a few pages to your right there. In First Kings, chapter 1, verse 49 through53, this is exactly what it's talking about. Listen to this, Then all the guests of Agenai trembled and rose, and each went his way. And Agenai feared Solomon, so he, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And so this, this fella here is fearful because he's committed a crime. And so he goes to the altar and he takes hold of the horns on the altar and he's doing that in order to protect his own skin. He knows that typically you're not going to be killed at the altar. And so we'll keep reading. This verse 51 says, then it was told Solomon, behold... Adonijah fears King Solomon for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar saying, let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hair shall fall on the earth. But if his, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. And so King Solomon sent and they brought him down from the altar and he came and paid homage to King Solomon. Solomon said to him, go to your house. You see, this is what this is referencing in verse, in verse 14. This cunning, this crafty individual that has, has murdered someone has now made their way to the altar thinking that if they have their hands on the horn of the altar that they're not going to die. But the Lord says this is, is not so. It, it's not how it works. The Lord's going to be sure that justice is served. Verse 15... Still under the capital crime category, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Now this word strikes, it's a verb that's used in the Hebrew and even in Genesis, I believe it's chapter 9, it's translated as to kill. And so this isn't just as as disrespectful as it would be a slap or just a punch in the arm or even just a punch in the face. This is an aggressive term really could be translated in layman terms as literally a a beat down of your parents. And even if they don't die. And so this is a striking that could potentially kill your parents, but it's not necessarily that your parents have have been killed. But the parents are set at a higher threshold. And and so the other commandments of at least in this capital crime category involved killing someone. But here, if you strike your parents, you are to die. You know, we'll have a little bit of an application on that on the end, but, but notice that it's not necessarily death here that warrants death. It's this level of disrespect and harm caused from a child to his or her parents that warrants the death penalty as well. Verse 15, whoever steals man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. To steal a human, that's what this is referencing here. To steal a human is to deny their freedoms and their dignity. And the Lord just does not put up with this. And so going completely against the culture, the Lord demands capital punishment regardless of age, sex, ethnicity, or class. If, if someone steals or participates in stealing a human, they are to be put to death. Okay. There were no questions asked. The Lord did not put up with human stealing, or we would call it kidnapping. Verse 17 Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Now this speaks of denouncing your parents or even there were some cases that I read that there would be a public oath rejecting your parents. But this word curse, it, it, it had a secondary meaning that I felt like was, was very important for us to know and understand. But the, uh, the secondary meaning for this word curse is to belittle. So this is a picture of a consistent Either private or public cursing or belittling or disrespecting of your parents. And I do think it's safe to say that this assumes that these are good parents that are referenced here. And I know that that's not the case. It wasn't the case for them, and it's certainly not the case for us. Everybody had not had the blessing or privilege of having good parents. Some, some people's parents are monsters, to be honest with you, and they're very dangerous and um, hateful towards their children. And so I, can, I, I understand how this would fall, but the Scriptures are clear that we, as much as we have the ability and the power, given the circumstance, even if it's a bad one, we are to hold parents to a higher threshold. And so in the book of the covenant, and as the Israelites make their way into this new nation, the Lord was not going to put up with children denouncing their parents or belittling their parents or cursing their parents. And notice that this finds itself in the capital crime category. I mean, don't y'all think that would cut down on the disrespect a little bit? (laughs) I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that I would be an advocate of this, but, I, but still, you again, like, so we see this law and we think, well, this doesn't really apply. But when you dig a little deeper and try to understand the principles that are here and what the Lord is, is protecting and, and what the Lord by protecting it is letting us know is actually sacred is the relationship within the home between the parent and the child. Verse 17 ends the capital offenses, but just, just something you might want to jot down here is maybe if you want to go back and look at these, these three capital I'm sorry, these capital offenses are rooted in three violations of the Ten Commandments. And so you might have noticed, "You shall not murder, you shall not steal, and you shall honor your mother and um, you, you shall honor your mother and your father are all addressed. And that's what I mean by the overlap in the civil and the moral law. You see it clearly there. So so pick it up in verse 18. We're in the personal injury category. And, and, you know, in in the personal injury category, I feel like before we address this, it might not have been a rare thing to see this billboard around Israel. Zach, this billboard around Israel. (laughs) Potentially. You know, because we are, we are dealing with personal injury and, and, and the kind of crimes that Mr. Shinar would gladly represent you. And, and if he would have been around then, then surely there would have been a billboard or two with him on there. Zach, you're going to have to be quicker in the second service than the third service, because it loses its luster if it's not bam. Yeah, all right. All right, verse 18. Verse 18 and 19, capital crime. You can take... Yeah, you go. All right. I started to put my brother up there. But I thought I I gave him a hard enough time last week, and I I didn't want him to... Anyway, all right. Verse 18. 18 and 19. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die, but takes to his bed. Then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So so this is somebody who is beaten and laid to waste, okay? He's hurt, but he is going to make a recovery. And the punishment here is is not death, but the punishment here is you have to pay him for the time that he is losing in regards to his work and and, and what his family would lose. But you also have to be sure that he is thoroughly healed. And that's where Mr. Shinar would come into play in being sure that you were compensated for your losses. Verse 20 and 22. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. And just for clarity, uh, before I move on, this avenged could be death. It could mean death, depending on what the severity of the punishment given to the slave was. The slave master could receive the death penalty here, but it still falls under this personal injury category. 21, but if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged for the slave... Is his money, and so that if you treat your slave harshly so that he dies, he shall be avenged, and that means punishment that causes significant harm. More than likely it's death, even though it's not explicit here. But I want you to notice that the severe punishment was not just to be administered to an upper class man or woman that was put to death, but also if a slave was killed by being struck, whoever struck him. The punishment could very likely be death. And and I, and I emphasize this because in the ancient Near East, it was unheard of to have laws that applied to all the classes the same. There was not a thing such as equality there was the upper class and there was the lower class. And so as God is establishing these new laws among his people, and and if you have, if you struggle with the slave talk, again, there was a message a couple of weeks ago that we spent some, some intentional time on understanding what this word slave means. So I'm still going to use it and it might mean something to you that it doesn't mean in the text, but I encourage you to go back and listen to those to kind of have a little bit better understanding of that as well. But I love the fact that that as the Lord establishes this new nation and these new people, that he is He is creating this equality. And that it's not just if you strike a rich person that you'll be punished. If you strike anybody, even a slave, there's punishment for that. And he goes on to say that if the slave survives, he's not to be con, um, avenged because of the slave is his money. Now, that sounds harsh to us, and, and it sounds like it sounds, but I want you to try to, again, slow down a little bit and, and, and grasp what it's saying. If you injured a person you would need to pay compensation for him. That's what the last law in in the last verses we just looked at talked about. But this is his own slave, which means this is his own economic investment. There was a a mutual agreement. It's perfectly safe and right to assume that there was a mutual agreement between this slave and the owner. But the owner purchased the slave's abilities and brought him on because of his skills and because of um, his his, uh, work ethic. But this is the slave owner's economic investment. And so the reason it says this the way that it does is because it wouldn't make sense for the owner that has hurt his slave to pay himself. He's already shot himself in the foot. He has an, an individual that he's invested in economically, and now he's harmed that individual so that he can't come through for him economically. And so there's nobody to compensate, nobody to pay except for, except for the slave. And, th- and that's what he's saying The master has to do without the labor while still caring for the needs of the injured slave. Verse 22 and 23. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman. Now, for the life of me this week, I tried to like figure out what scenario would this happen in? (laughs) Evidently, it was the thing. And I don't know exactly when or how or, or what, but here it is. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determined. But if there is harm, then you shall pay a life for a life. Now you have two men striving or two men fighting and in the midst of their rage, one of them strikes a pregnant woman. And so the idea is that it may even be that the pregnant woman is killed or she's just hurt. We, we don't know. But again, it's that Hebrew verb strike that is, is, is no small thing. It's not just a, a passing glance. I mean, this is a beat down of some kind or a very vicious strike. And so the question is this, to whom does the harm phrase refer are we talking about harm, no harm to the woman, or no harm to the child that she is carrying? And this is actually a very important point, and in, in, in my opinion, and you may not see that, and I, but I hope that you understand where I'm coming from. But I think the harm phrase is clearly speaking of harm to the child, and I say that because verse 22 makes it clear that the man has already hit the pregnant woman. Again, this is a strike, so harm is assumed. She doesn't just get up and brush this off. And so the harm has already been there for the woman because she's been hit. This is an aggressive, horrible kind of abuse from one man to another man's wife. The wife would not have escaped without any harm. And I think that's a given. But if there is no harm, then there is actually another individual that's involved in this other than the man who did the striking and other than the woman who's pregnant. And it's who? It's the baby. the child. So I think if there's no harm and the baby is okay and there's no damage to the woman's reproductive system, I think that's why that tense of, uh, or or why it says children and not child, children. I don't think it's necessarily talking about, that would make the situation even more odd. It's two men, when two men are striving and she's pregnant with septuplets, I mean, like this is what you do. I I think it's referencing a, a potential harm to the woman's reproductive system from then on depending on what happened to her. And so then the woman still must be avenged, but not by death, but with a penalty. And the penalty would be whatever the husband thought. The husband of the woman who's been struck would impose a fine and the judge would determine to compensate for the offense. Now, verse 23, you see another harm clause here. And and again, this is an important point, I think, especially for those of us that believe in life beginning at conception, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. I I think it stands to reason that if the first harm clause dealt with the child, and I think it does, then this harm clause also deals with the child. And you see clearly that an unborn fetus is not treated as a mass of tissue, as a potential life, or an accident, I'm sorry, or an incidental injury, but under the Book of the Covenant, it would be treated as a human next category is criminal negligence, verses 28 through 36. Now, I'm going to read this and just kind of talk through it with you. When an ox gores a man. Now, again, I know nobody in this room has an ox. I know that. I know there's no threat that any of us right now, we have any sort of anxiety or angst that our ox is going to hurt somebody while we're here. But hang in there. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Now, this is common sense. The The owner, on the first offense of the ox, uh, is not liable because you can't control animals. Look, I know we think we have all these animals tamed, but really and truly... An animal can turn. Even the most wonderful house pet or cat or dog or whatever it is can turn at any moment. There's no way that we can guarantee that an animal will act a certain way. And so that's the case. That's what he's dealing with here. At the first offense then, no harm, no foul. Verse 29, but if the ox has been acu- uh, I'm sorry, accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned. Listen, and its owner also shall be put to death. This is where you have negligence, criminal negligence. And so now you know this animal is dangerous and you have done nothing about it. And it ends up taking the life of another human. The ox is stoned, but so is the owner. Verse 30, if a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life, whatever is imposed on him. 31, if it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. So so the Lord really wants his people to keep a, a close eye on their oxes. Is that how you say it? Plural oxes much ox oxen oxen on their oxen 33 when a man opens a pit now there is a chance Bob dug a hole yesterday in the yard and just didn't feel like filling it in and left it open and the neighbor might come strolling through there and fall in or his dog or his cat but that's what it's talking about When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. That's just fair, right? If your ox kills my ox, then um, you, you sell the dead beast and you split the deal. Thirty-six, Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. Now, what in the world does all of this have to do with us? I want to close with four takeaways. They're going to be obvious. Nothing life-changing, well, life-changing for sure, but nothing... That's going to blow your mind. That's what I meant to say. But I think the first takeaway based on what we read today in the section of Exodus 21 is that according to the Lord, life is precious. And it's not based on class. It's preciousness, that is, or its value or its dignity. It's not based on class. It's not based on gender. It's not based on your position inside or outside of the womb. Every life is precious and every life is to be protected. So that's from conception to the person to whom we've been told only has days to live. As long as they have breath in their lungs and blood flowing through their veins, their life is precious and is to be treated that way. And we are to do whatever we can to protect that life and trust the Lord in his providence and in his sovereignty to take that life as he sees fit at the time that he has ordained. We never under any circumstance have the right to take the life of an individual who has and, and I use the word innocent loosely and I use the word innocent under this you know, un, as the way that we understand it from an innocent individual there are circumstances where it is appropriate to take the life of another human but certainly those are extreme but life is precious second The Lord is serious about the parent-child relationship. Did you notice that under the capital crime category, two times parents being mistreated is brought up and both times they're punishable by death. I mean, that has to stand out to us. It has to open our eyes and cause us to pause because parents and children, we must take seriously the blessing and the intent of the relationship that the Lord has placed us in. It's a really big deal. It's a really big deal if the Lord has seen fit to bless you with biological children. Or for some of you, maybe you don't have biological children, but you have taken on that role because you're part of a faith family and you are actively involved in men and women's lives who are younger than you. That, that's a valuable thing. Like, and so parents, we have to be serious. And we all have to encourage parents to be serious about the role that the Lord has placed them in. And children as well. Third, the punishment should fit the crime. No more, no less. Now, under this one, I want you to go back to verse 23. Because I skipped it if you didn't notice. Verse 23 says, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. Now, we've all heard eye for eye. We've all heard tooth for tooth. But I think the thing to remember is is that this was an expression of moderation and not cruelty. And, And I do think most of the time in Scripture, other than life for life, life for life is crystal clear. But what's not crystal clear is eye for eye. We don't really see a lot of examples of that. In fact, if you look at verse 26, when a man strikes the eye, this would have been a perfect example to give us uh, you know, some sort of situation that explained what eye for eye meant. Because when, when a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, it doesn't say the slave gets to strike the eye of the master, right? That would be eye for eye. But it says, he shall let the slave go free. Because of his eye. Again, in 27, if he knocks out the tooth of a slave, it would make sense. Well, you knocked out the slave's tooth, and the master needs to turn right around and knock out. I'm, I'm sorry, the slave needs to turn right around and knock out the master's tooth, but that's that's not the way that it goes. And so what's the alternative to an eye for an eye? Something that's excessive would be your head for an eye. That's not justice. The eye for eye, tooth for tooth, burn for burn, all of that was meant to prevent personal vengeance and excessive punishment. I think most of the time that is to be understood metaphorically. And if someone has lost an eye, you, lo- you lose an eye. That, that's, that's not the way that the law played itself out in their culture. The point of it was not necessarily, okay, you thump my ear, I thump your ear, or you pluck my eye, I pluck your eye. The point of it was the punishment fits the crime like justice like like you it's it's equal you don't do less but you don't do more whatever the crime is then the punishment should fit the crime there shouldn't be this excessive vengeance on somebody like if somebody plucks out your eye I mean I agree that's a big deal but 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 if somebody plucks your eye you don't cut their head off right that's excessive but if somebody plucks your eye, you also don't just go kind of tap them on the back of the hand either. That's, that's not enough. And so the punishment has to fit the crime. Nothing more and nothing less. And I think this is an application for us in just understanding not only how we relate to our culture, but also how we relate to one another. Again, starting in our homes. A lot of times in our own homes and the people that we love the most, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. A lot of times there's excessive... Force, and I don't use that in a a sinful way. I was trying to be funny, but then I thought it through and like force doesn't sound good. I don't mean abuse. I just mean sometimes we go over the top with our vengeance towards our spouse or towards our children and the punishment just doesn't match the crime. Well, in the Mosaic Law, in the Book of the Covenant, the punishment fit the crime. It was nothing more, nothing less. Fourth, and I actually love this one because it's so practical. Careful... Careful responsibility is a primary way to love your neighbor. Some of us may say, I love my neighbor. I want to love my neighbor. I want to do mercy to people. I want to be all in on social justice. And you know what Moses would say? Okay, can you keep an eye on your ox so that it doesn't hurt people? If you dig a hole, can you be sure to mark that hole or to to? cover that hole so nobody falls into it. Like if we say we want to love our neighbor and, and I think most of us would say that and then, I mean, I think what Moses might say to us and, and uh, it's fair, you know, nobody's necessarily going to die from some of these things, but I mean I, it, it crossed my mind. What would Moses say to us as we say, hey, I, I really want to love my neighbor. As we think about careful responsibility being a primary way to love our neighbor, he'd probably say, hey, put the buggy back. Pick up the trash you see. Don't drink and drive. Don't text and drive. And I'm guilty. Texting and driving. <laughs> yeah, just for clarity. We thought it was not big about that. Right, well, that too. but <laughs> But not recently. I used to not care one bit about that. But I do now. I do. Honestly, I do. And so... Don't drink and drive. Don't text and drive. You guys can think of some things. I mean, they're just things that we can do for our neighbor that are just things, acts of careful responsibility. Keeping our houses safe. Keeping our yards safe. Keeping our vehicles safe. Even thinking about how we drive. So, that, I mean, so that we don't use excessive speed. So we don't use erratic behavior. All those things can sound and can just kind of be written off as, "Well, I'm free to do these things," and that really sounds legalistic. And and I, I agree. I mean, you can get carried away with some of that. But I'm not talking about like how you're safe. I'm not talking about doing things to make God love you more. I'm just saying careful responsibility and concern for your neighbor. Like there are things, and even in their day and age, when all they were talking about were oxen and other things, like we have so many more other things that are out there that could cause harm to our neighbor that we just take for granted. And so I think the law that the Lord is establishing is teaching them and helping them to love their neighbor in some of the purest ways, in some of the most simple ways, just by careful responsibility every day. I think we love our neighbor by doing a hundred little things to think ahead, to follow through, to show up on time, to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. And as I said, making sure our houses and our cars are safe. And there are a thousand other ways, but careful responsibility is a way of loving your neighbor. Now we have to wrap this up. We're going to wrap this up the same way at least the next two weeks. I think Brandon has the next one. I don't know if he'll end this way, but I plan to end with these exact words next week as well, because it's it's going to be a similar message. But the Lord knew something of his people. and, And he knew this of them before they knew this of them. We know something of Israel because of what history reveals to us in particularly what the Lord knew and what the Israelites came to know and what we see in history is that they did not have a good track record in regards to obedience to the law that was given to them. But the problem was not the law. The problem is not the book of the covenant. The problem is not the 10 commandments. The law that God gave is holy and the law that God gave is good. The problem was the people's sin. And it's the same for us. See, the law was perfect and the law was good and the law was holy, but the law was not capable of transforming a heart. The law could not rescue them or us from sin's bondage. It wasn't meant to do that. However, it did have a redemptive purpose and the purpose of the law was one of revealing the sin that imprisons us and preparing us for God's solution to that sin. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Now, before faith came, that's when they're under the old covenant. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, and this is a wonderful Bible word, until. And so if you underline or highlight, like, memorize it, note, like, this is a huge, huge transition. Until. Let me back up. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, in prison. There it is. Until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse twenty-four. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Verse twenty-five. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Until the gospel came forth, it was captivity. They were in bondage to the law's condemnation. They were in bondage to the law. Period. The law was not meant to rescue them. The law was not meant to transform their hearts. It, it did not have that power, and it did not have that ability. And even though the law did not come with the ability, um, the ability to obey it, praise the Lord. The gospel did. In Acts chapter sixteen, verse fourteen, it says, "This one who heard." us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Listen to this. The law couldn't do this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, listen, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of God of Jesus Christ. If the Lord were not causing the gospel of Christ to be accompanied by the work of the Spirit, then the gospel would shut us under in the same way that the law did. Because we, in and of ourselves, have no ability to adhere to the law of God perfectly. And we, in and of ourselves, have no ability to respond to the grace of God in a way that would cause us to be saved. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that that wasn't God's plan. That with the coming of Christ and with the coming of the gospel story, Jesus promised a, one that would be better than him. He, he, he told his disciples that it's better if I go away because my spirit is coming. And what the spirit brought was the ability for us to see the Lord for who he is. As, as Paul said to the church at Corinth, the light of the gospel shone in our hearts so that we could see and so that we could believe. Just like he did with Lydia, he opened her heart to understand and to believe and gave her the faith that it took to follow. And every believer here is evidence that by the sovereign grace of God that faith has come and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our hearts and made us new. And so as we reflect on the law of Moses, and then we think about the Israelites inability to obey that law and adhere to that law, friends, the same would have been true of us if we would have been living in that time left to ourselves. We just have no way to obey the Lord perfectly. It's impossible. We don't have enough righteous deeds to do in order to make ourselves righteous, but one has come who has fulfilled the law perfectly, and that's Jesus. One has come who not only stood in our place and walked the path of obedience, but he also died the death that the law demands and that's punishment. And that's capital punishment, and Jesus himself took took our place and took our punishment for our inability to adhere to the law, even though he adhered to the law perfectly. And so with the gospel, with the gospel comes the wonderful reality of the work of the Spirit in regeneration and us being born again, meaning that we can come to him by faith and believe because of his own work. Joseph, you can come on. Let's pray. Lord, we'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.